Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Last week was pretty dark. We saw the consequences of sin in the life of David. Um, If you remember what happened last week, so David has two, basically three children. So one of the children is um, Absalom and Tamar, our blood brother and sister. And then Amnon is the stepbrother. Amnon rapes Tamar. She's kicked to the curb. She's destitute. She's the only person in the entire narrative that's speaking the truth. Nobody's listening to her. Uh, She's basically a victim of aggression. We also saw that Amnon was lustful. He just was controlled by lust. David didn't do anything about it as his dad. David was a passive dad. And then Absalom, if you remember, Absalom waits two years before he takes out revenge. And then he basically, he doesn't pull the trigger per se, just like David doesn't pull the trigger on Uriah, but he has Amnon killed at that sheep shearing festival where he got him drunk and wandered around. And so basically when you think about everything that's been going on, there's nobody righteous in Israel except for maybe the one, the one woman. And so I just want to remind you, actually I told you to turn to 2 Samuel 15, that's where we're going to be tonight, but turn back real quick to chapter 12. And again, this is piling up, everything's piling up because of David's sin with Bathsheba, David's sin with Uriah, Nathan the prophet comes to him, and let's just backtrack and see the consequences of David's sin. So back in chapter 12, verse 10, Nathan the prophet says to David, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So Nathan says to David, you're going to have consequences in your family for a, for a long time. There's going to be violence. There's going to be mayhem. There's going to be sexual immorality. It's not going to go well for you. And so last week, we kind of left off with this whole idea that God does discipline his wayward children. And so we talked about discipline. That's what God was doing in David's life, was disciplining him. Hebrews 12.10 For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So, we are going to cover three chapters tonight. I know that's a lot. I'm going to summarize and skip over some and kind of fill in the blanks, but these three chapters kind of all go together and tell kind of one big story. But here's the big idea for tonight when you look at all three of these chapters. So amid the catastrophic consequences of sin, God still sovereignly works to preserve his wayward children. Okay, so here's the question. Has God abandoned David? No. 
If you are a true Christian and you sin, do you lose your salvation? No. Do you get disciplined? Yes. Is God sovereignly working to preserve you? Okay. Which, at first glance, that's good news. God's working to keep you, but it could be painful in the process. So, God will work in His sovereign grace to preserve you. If you're truly His, He will never leave you nor forsake you, but will work powerfully to draw you back to Himself. It may be painful as He does that, but God's doing it for your good. So, last week, at the end of chapter 13, where does David, I mean, where does Absalom end up going? He flees for his life, and he goes and lives with his grandfather, and he has to live there for five years. And then finally, he's allowed to come back to Jerusalem to serve his father. But here's the question. Are Absalom's intention to serve his father or to conspire against his father? Basically, what we're going to find out is that Absalom conspires a hostile takeover of King David's throne. So, we need to remember two key things about David even after his grievous sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Okay? These things don't change, even though David sinned. Okay? It may be hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact, but number one, David is still a man after God's own heart. Now you may say, how can David be a man after God's own heart when he committed these grievous sins? Okay, before we cast stones at David, let's ask the question, have you ever committed a grievous sin? <laughs> Maybe. Are you still a Christian? Yes. So why is David a man after God's own heart? Because he was repentant. He confessed his sin. He owned up to his sin. He was broken by his sin. And number two, let's not forget this, David is still God's anointed and rightful king to rule Israel. Has God raised up anybody else to rule Israel? No, he's still the rightful anointed king. Now, one thing you're going to find out about Absalom he probably made the cover of GQ. He's got rock star good looks. That's the way that they describe him. So let's, um, but before we get into chapter 15, just look at how he's described in chapter 14. Verse 25. So everybody there, I know I'm having you skip all over the place. I, we're eventually going to get to chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. All right. That's a pretty, that's, that's like a description you don't hear of any other man in the Bible. From his head to his toe, he was the most handsome man in all Israel, no blemish, and he had some flowing hair, okay? Maybe if it was, you know, back in the 80s, maybe Fabio could play, could play Absalom or somebody. I don't know who to compare him to today. But let's ask the question, what has been Israel's problem from the very beginning when it comes to a king? 
What, who was the king before David? Saul. What was the issue with Saul? They went by his appearance, his looks, because he was a, a foot taller. Remember 1 Samuel 16, 7? Oh, get, get past here. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the height. Okay, let me ask you a question about hair for a moment. Who are two other people, two other men in the Bible that were known for their hair? Samson. Did that go well for him? And another guy that was hairy when he came out of his mother's womb. Esau. Okay, so Esau was hairy. Samson had long hair. Absalom has long hair. Saul was good looking. I don't know if he had long hair, but what, what's kind of the author here building up to about Absalom just by his appearance? He's in the line of Esau and Solomon. I mean, Esau and Sam, Esau and um, Samson and Saul. All right, now we're going to get to 1 Samuel 15. So we are going to look at four major scenes tonight that span chapters 15, 16, and 17. So I've broken it up in four parts or four scenes. So here's scene, scene number one, the treachery of conspiracy. The treachery of conspiracy. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, Hey, from what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put, his hand, put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went into their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahitophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. All right. few things to notice about Absalom. Now, he's not necessarily quote-unquote king, but what's the first thing you notice there in verse 1? He got himself a chariot and horses. Do you remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the kings in Israel were not to amass a bunch of personal horses 
or chariots for themselves. Now, you could have an army, but you couldn't amass them for yourselves. Absalom's the first quote-unquote king, he's not king yet, in Israel to amass for himself horses and chariots. That's a foreshadowing of evil. You don't do that as king. And Absalom here is, is basically doing a four-year strategy, standing at the city gate. So what's his ploy? His ploy is basically people come from all over the, the country to come to King David to hear their disputes. We've got a dispute. We've got an issue. Maybe the king will hear us. Maybe the king will give us favor. Maybe the king will settle the dispute. And so what Absalom does is he waits at the city gate. And as these people are coming in, he stops them and says, Hey, what's your, what's your deal? What's your issue? Well, my issue is this. He says, You know what? The king really doesn't have anybody to do that. Let me help you. Let me cultivate this. So he begins cultivating these um, relationships. And so Absalom is not like an ivory tower politician. He's down in the trenches rubbing shoulders with people, shaking hands and kissing them and, and doing all this stuff. And so what he's doing here is he's, over a four-year period of time, he is jockeying and positioning himself to be the favored leader in Israel that people are going to turn to because he's basically preventing them to get to the king. Like he's standing in the way. Like they want to come to King David to hear their disputes. He's the, he's the middleman. He stops these people and says, I'll take care of your problem. I'll be your man. I'll be the one that takes care of you. I'll listen to your problems. But see, you see it summed up at the end of verse 6. What does the end of verse 6 say? He stole the hearts of the people. He duped them. He pulled the wool over their eyes so they would blindly follow him and believe his promises. He stole their hearts. Who were their hearts supposed to be devoted to ultimately to the Lord, but as subjects of King David? So, here's an application question for you to think about. Have you ever experienced a person like this who tries to subvert authority by working behind the scenes? Especially in the life of a church. I've seen it in my former church in Colorado Springs this was before I came, about a year or two before I came, there, there was a group of people that did not like the pastor. And so they were trying to do everything they can to basically oust the pastor. And so what they were doing is they would have um, Sunday school classes where they would like talk about how they were going to take over the church. And then they would have home groups where they were going to talk about how to take over the church. And anytime a new person came into the church, like they would visit, they would grab that new person and they would take him out to lunch and they would say, hey, you know, we're glad you're coming to this church and we're glad that you're part of things. What do you think of the pastor's preaching? Like putting seeds, you know, we really don't think he's the greatest preacher. We don't know, we don't really like his leadership. You know, what do you, what do you think if we kind of established our own leader? And so actually this went on for a couple of months until it actually came to a head. Um, these people were working behind the scenes to try to take down the pastor. But they didn't come right out and say, hey, we're doing this you know, right away. You have to do it behind the scenes. And so that's what Absalom's doing. He's working behind the scenes. He's politically maneuvering. He's taking four years. That's a long time. He's ta- that's like a four-year presidential campaign. Like a four- He's taken four years to steal the hearts of the people. And so what does he do? He gets men to go with him to Hebron, 
And basically, David lets him go. David believes that he's going to go. He basically says, hey, listen, when you let me back to Jerusalem, I made this vow. I was going to go sacrifice to the Lord. And so um, he basically lies to his dad. And David says, sure, go on out there and do that and go in peace. And so basically um, they go to Hebron, which, by the way, where's Hebron? Do you remember where Hebron was? Hebron was where all the tribes of Israel recognized David as king, and he was anointed there. Now, remember, Samuel anointed him originally when he was a little, you know, younger, before he you know, killed Goliath, but Hebron was the town where David was anointed as the rightful king. So verse 11, he's got 200 men. They're invited guests. They go in innocence. They don't know what's going on. But he sends secret messengers throughout all the tribes saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, say, Absalom is king. Okay. And look at the very end of verse 12. The conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So his plan worked over four years. The conspiracy to take over his dad's throne, the conspiracy to become king, worked. He stole the hearts of the people. Okay, now, that's scene number one. The treachery of conspiracy. He's, he's a treacherous man. Not only did he kill his brother Amnon out of rage, but he, now he's wanting to take over his dad's kingdom, David. So let's look at scene two, the trial of exile. Let's look at verses 13 through 37. This is a long section, but let's read this whole section here. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house, and the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites and all the Pelotathites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Let's just kind of skip through this. They're, they're fleeing. Um, let's go down to verse 24. Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahamaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Okay, let's just stop right there. there David has to flee. Okay, word gets back to David that Absalom's conspiracy is working and the nation is going after him. And so David has to do what? He has to flee Jerusalem. 
Now, David's an older age here. He's the rightful king. This is the man that killed Goliath. This is the man that captured the Philistines. This is the man that captured Jerusalem. This is the man who is in the throne in Jerusalem. What's he have to do now? He has to run for his life. Because Absalom has gotten strong, Absalom could come back and invade and take over and kill David and has enough people to follow him that he'd be able to do it. Now, look at verses 24 through 26. Well, let's talk about the, um, well, we just read verses 24 through 26. Zadok the priest starts bringing the Ark of the Covenant out with him. And what does David say? Don't bring the Ark of the Covenant. Send it back to the city. And then notice what he says. Let's actually read that again. Verse 25. The king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it, that's the Ark of the Covenant, and his dwelling place, the tabernacle. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. Now, the Ark of the Covenant sometimes could be used in the eyes of Israel as possibly a good luck charm. Like if we take, that's probably what Zadok is thinking. If we take the Ark of the Covenant with us, God will be with us. It's kind of like a good, good luck charm if we bring this box with us. But David's not going to manipulate God. He's not going to, quote-unquote, use the Ark of the Covenant for his advantage. He understands that the Ark of the Covenant rightfully belongs in Jerusalem. So he tells him to send it back. And so David is not going to use, David's not going to bargain with God. And you probably don't have a, a, a luck charm that you would say that you have like a lucky charm that you try to use God with. But have you ever heard people bargain with God? And say, maybe say things like this. God, if I go to church this week and I give a good tithe, you better give me a good week and bless me. Maybe you wouldn't say that, but maybe somebody says that. God, I've seen this televangelist on TV. If I just give seed, seed money to his ministry you'll give me my financial breakthrough. You're obligated to bless me. God, if I do this good deed for this person at work, then you'll give me that raise. We kind of play these games with God, like, God, if I do this thing, this religious thing, then you've got to bless me. And so Zadok the priest is thinking, if we take the Ark of the Covenant with us, God will bless us. And David's like, that's not the way it works. The Ark of the Covenant belongs in Jerusalem. And as a matter of fact, I have sinned. What does David say? If, if I found favor with the Lord, he's going to bring me back to Jerusalem. But look at verse 26. But if God says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now, what type of attitude is that? What's David saying there? What's David's attitude? He's basically saying this. He's saying, even if God leaves me as a fugitive, in exile, 
suffering the catastrophic consequences of my sin, and my wicked son, Absalom, takes the throne, and I'm never king again, I know that God is right and just and sovereign in doing that, and he owes me nothing. Do you think David ever thought to himself, back when I committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, God should have killed me because the death penalty for adultery and murder is being stoned? Do you think David's ever like, actually, God should have probably killed me back then? God, David's basically saying, I can't manipulate God. If God wants to punish me for my sin and I have to face the consequences of my sin, I'm going to let God do what God sees right to do. And if God finds favor with me, he's going to bring me back. In other words, everything is in God's hands. It's kind of like what what Paul says when he's quoting Moses in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 to 16. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. David does not try to fight God's sovereignty. What does David say? But, but, but God, I'm the king. You have to bless me. God, Absalom's a wicked son. You can't let him have the throne. Didn't you tell me I'm a man after your own heart? You, you, you can't let me be exiled out of Jerusalem. You owe me, God. After all the times I've served you after, as a matter of fact, I killed Goliath. God, you owe me. Is that what David says? God, you owe me? He says what? If God wants me back, he'll bring me back. If he doesn't want me back, that's his choice. I'm not going to fight the sovereign purposes of God because I know in the end of things I should be killed. God owes me nothing but wrath and death, and the fact that I'm still living is all of God's grace. And I wonder if we ever have that opinion, that entitlement. God, you owe me. We wouldn't say that out loud. But sometimes we may have that attitude, like, I've done all these things, God, you owe me. No. God does owe you death. (laughs) The wages of sin is death. That's what you owe. That's what you owe God, and God owes you. Now, That's truly a man after God's own heart, verse 26. What would a man after God's own heart not say? If you weren't a man after God's own heart, what would you say? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant and hope for the best. God, you owe us. I'm the king. But a man after God's own heart, in verse 26, says, If I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Let God do what God's going to do. God's in charge. If the consequences are way worse than what I thought, I will accept them because God's in charge. Now, one thing we do see in God's providence, in David's life, is that he gives David three trusted friends who will not betray him. Have you, have you thought about how many times David's been betrayed as we've looked at over the weeks? Saul betrayed him. The, the, the city of the Ziphites betrayed him. His own people betrayed him. His son's now betraying him. Jonathan's dead by now. Jonathan was his friend. Jonathan died in battle. He was the one guy that never betrayed him. But here late in his life, God gives him three friends. Okay, so 
you want to have three friends that have this name, okay? So you want to have a friend named Zadok, you want to have a friend named Abiathar, and you want to have a friend named Hushai. Okay, so find those friends. The two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, they would go back to Jerusalem and be, quote, the eyes and ears for King David as spies. So David flees, but he sends the two priests back. Because after all, they're the priests. They can stay back and, quote, unquote, do the sacrifices. But ultimately, they're going to be spies. They're going to spy on Absalom and find out what's going on. Okay, Hushai, who's described as David's most trusted friend, will find out is going to be used by God to deliver David. Now, this is something that God often does in His kindness. After you've sinned or you've failed or you've blown it and you feel really guilty and you're experiencing the Lord's discipline, one thing God does is He may bring friends into your life to encourage you. Now, that encouragement may be hard because they're confronting you in your sin. So how many of you have been in a difficult how many of you have been in a difficult time or faced the consequences of your sins and God brought a true friend to you to speak the truth and it hurt but in the end those were the words you needed to hear exactly at that time. Ephesians 4.15 says this. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who's the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. That's a hard thing to do to someone. As a pastor, I have to do that all the time. If somebody comes and meets with me and they're in sin, I have to speak the truth, but I have to do it in love. And they may not want to hear what I have to say, but I have to say it. But here's one, Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It may hurt to hear your friend confront you, but they're doing it because they love you. So in David's fleeing, in his exile, in this very difficult time, where his son's conspiring to kill him and take over the throne, the Lord sends three trusted friends, Zadok and Abiathar, the two priests, and then Hushai. Okay? So, that's scene one. Scene one was the, the treachery of Absalom conspiring to take over and stealing the hearts of the people. Scene two was David has to flee. He has to get out of there, and he consigns himself to say, whatever God has in store, I'm, I'm resigned to receive it because God is sovereign and I am not, and I will take whatever he brings. Whatever God sees fit to do, I will accept it. And now we come to scene three, which is the travesty of betrayal. We'll look at this at chapter 16. Okay? So David had three friends, but in... The, in chapter 16, we see three supposed friends of David betray him. Comes in threes. So we're going to see three men betray David that he thought were his, um, were his friends. The first man is Ziba. 
Do you guys remember who Zeba was? Probably don't. You remember Mephibosheth, the boy, the, the crippled boy with the feet that was Jonathan's son? Okay. Remember how David took Mephibosheth into his family and brought him in? And Well, Zeba was his servant. Okay, so Zeba was the servant of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth pledged loyalty. Remember, he was fearful living for his life in exile, and David brought him in and brought him to his table. And so, so let's read um, David and Zeba. Okay, so let's read, let's read chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, he's still on his way out, Zeba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, hearing 200 lo- oh, ha- bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100, I'm having a hard time reading, 100 of summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Zeba, Why have you brought these? And Zeba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? And Zeba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Zeba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Zeba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Okay, what's going on here? Zeba brings all this, these donkeys and food on the way out as they're fleeing. And basically, David's like, well, where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't he coming with you? You're his servant. And what does Zeba say? Zeba say? Zeba tells David a bold-faced lie to David that Mephibosheth has turned against David and aligned with Absalom, which was absolutely untrue. So in a split decision, David chooses to disinherit Mephibosheth. Now, basically, we'll find out Zeba lies to David. He says, Mephibosheth, that, that young man that you thought you were going to bring into your family, well, he's not on your side now, David. He's gone on Absalom's side. He's staying back in Jerusalem because he's thankful that he may get back what was coming to him all this time. And, 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 but do you remember what David gave him? It's a bold place. David gave him back everything, his inheritance and everything. So Ziba betrays David, tells him a lie about Mephibosheth. Okay? The second man, this one's kind of a funny little story, uh, Shimei. Shimei is not really a friend, but we'll find out who's Shimei. He's a cranky old man that basically cusses David out. So you guys ready to see what happens next? Okay. So they're on their way out. They're, they're fleeing Jerusalem. So let's pick up in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zerai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, 
you sons of Zeruiah. If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much now, not more now, this Benjamite, leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. So there's a cranky old man, Shimei. What's he doing? He's kicking rocks, and he's throwing stones, and he's cussing out David. You worthless blankety-blank, he's cussing him out. And Abishai, who's David's bodyguard, says, David, do you want me to go cut this guy's head off? Basically, his bodyguard says, I want to go kill him. He's cursing you. He's continually cursing you. He's throwing rocks at you. And, and why won't David let him? I mean, he's like, it's almost like a sordid R-rated movie here. He's like expletive, expletive, expletive. You, you can picture this salty old man out there just like letting the F-bomb fly at David. The whole, I mean, that's kind of what the picture is in the original language. Just cursing him out. And David says to Abishai, his bodyguard, no. It, maybe the Lord has sent him to curse me out. That's a weird thought. I don't want to go into that tonight, but that's just a, a weird thought. But here's the question. Why does David not retaliate and silence this man named Shimei? David thinks maybe he's right to be cussed out. Maybe he deserves what's being told to him. Maybe not in the way that it's done with rocks being thrown into him, but what is, the, what is Shimei saying to David? You basically you deserve this. You brought this on yourself. You're a man of blood. And what's David thinking to himself? Well, that could be right. I did bring this on myself. I am a man of blood. I had Uriah killed. I'm paying the consequences for my sin. Now, remember what David had just said in the, in the few verses or the, the chapter before? Whatever God brings about, I will accept. Whatever seems right to God, let him do it. And so the next thing David faces is this guy cussing him out, and maybe David's thinking to himself, well, this may be part of the discipline that this old man's coming out and cussing me out, and maybe I deserve it. So again, David consigns himself to God's will and accepts whatever comes his way as discipline. So how has David been betrayed? So what did Ziba do? Ziba lied to his face. And Shimei cussed him out. Now, the third one is the hardest. And, I, and it's hard to pronounce this guy's name. The third person to betray David is Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Let's keep reading. Now, Absalom and all the people... The men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, Know for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen. His I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? I have served your father, so I will serve you. 
Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel of Ahithophel gave was if, as if one consulted the word of God, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and Absalom. Okay, we'll talk about this, but first of all, who's, who is Ahithophel? Who is this guy? He's the grandfather of Bathsheba. But he's also, before that, he was David's most trusted counselor. Before David committed adultery with Bathsheba, Ahithophel was his right-hand man. Like his prime minister, his, his chief of staff, his, um, basically his, right, his most trusted counselor. And now, his most trusted counselor is now turning on David and joining Absalom. Now, the text does not tell us why, but let's fill in the blanks here. Perhaps, the Bible doesn't say, but perhaps he never got over the fact that his granddaughter was violated, adultery, and his grandson-in-law was murdered by David. Maybe he just never got over the fact. So, what did David do with Bathsheba? He committed adultery with her in secret. What does Ahithophel tell Absalom to do? If you really want to make your dad mad, and you really want to show that you're like flaunting, go take all of David's concubines and make it public. Go out on the roof of the palace. I have to be a little bit careful because there's a child in here. Uh, go out on the roof of the palace. <laughs> Sorry, Rico. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be a little. Go out on the roof of the palace and in front of everybody. In front of everybody. So he convinces Absalom to go steal David's harem of wives and commit a very public act of indecency on the roof of the palace. Now remember, we read it when we first started, but we'll read it again. This time I'll have it on your sheet so you don't have to turn back to it. What did Nathan the prophet say was going to be part of David's consequences? 2 Samuel 12, 11-12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Okay, who's, that coming? who's the evil that's coming up against David out of his own house? Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. In other words... You stole Uriah's wife and did it in private. Absalom's going to steal your wives and do it in public for all Israel to see. Which is basically the nail in the coffin of the wickedness of Absalom. Basically by doing that, and he's doing that at the council of Ahithophel, who was before David's most trusted counselor who's now betrayed David and said, if you really want to get back at your dad, go do this. So with this very public act of rebellion, Absalom was telling the entire nation, there's no turning back. 
I burned all bridges with my father. I have no desire to reconcile. I'm not changing my mind about this hostile takeover. We're going forward with this thing. Okay, so David's been lied to by someone he trusted. He's been cursed by an old man throwing rocks at him. And he's been betrayed by his most trusted counselor. And his son is wanting to take over the kingdom, so he's having to flee. So things look pretty bad, don't they? Like if this was a movie, what would you think? David's a goner. Three strikes, you're out. Absalom's going to take over. But you know how good movies end, right? You can't get away with that. So what's scene four? Scene four is the triumph of salvation. Okay. We come to chapter 17. But what's been brewing behind the scenes that we don't really know is that David's most trusted friend, Hushai. Remember he had three friends? Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, were sent back to spy, but Hushai is David's most trusted man at this time. He sends Hushai back to Absalom to pretend to, to, to vow allegiance to him. So Hushai is going to go back and say, I've, I've abandoned David. I'm no longer on David's side. I'm on your side, Absalom. Okay, so now Absalom has two men that are his counselors in his inner circle. The two men that David had as his most trusted counselors. Hushai, who's secretly on David's side, Absalom doesn't know, and Ahithophel, who used to be David's most trusted confidant. So what is Absalom thinking in his mind? I got it made. Because I have David's most trusted counselor, older guy, Ahithophel, and Hushai, the younger. I've got two of David's most trusted confidants. They've, they've defected. They've rebelled. Now they're on my side. And they know everything about David. They know all his secrets. They know all his military strategies. I can use them to my advantage to, to take over. But Hushai is secretly on David's side. Okay, so... I know this is, a, this is a plot. This is a, like, does this really happen in the Bible? Yes, this really happened. All right. Back in chapter 15, verse 31, David prays a very important prayer. I skipped over it on purpose. So let's go back to chapter 15 and see what prayer David prays. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. What's David's prayer? Well, Ahithophel's defected. He switched sides. If he's going to give counsel to Absalom, let the counsel he give be foolish and not listened to. Lord, please don't let Absalom listen. Let his counsel be foolish. That's what David's prayer is. You read it right there. O Lord, this is a prayer, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Okay. Now, let's go back and read that exchange 
that Hushai does. When, there's kind of a play on things here. Before we get into chapter 17, go back and let's see what Hushai says when Hushai goes in and acts like he's on Absalom's side. Okay, So let's look at chapter 16, verse 15. We're going to read this again. I'm kind of filling in all the gaps here for you. Okay, Now Absalom and all the people came to the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Ab- Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to him, Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, <coughs> his I will be, and with him I will remain. Long live the king. Long live. So what's he come in? He comes in and says, Long live the king. What does he not say? Long live Absalom. He just says, long live the king. What king? Well, in Hushai's mind, it's, I'm on David's side because I'm a spy. Long live the king. I'm telling you, Absalom, to your face, long live the king, so you think that I'm on your side. But really, what I'm doing here is I'm letting you know that I'm on your side, ha-ha, but you're so intoxicated with this desire to be a king that you're soaking this right up. And so what does he do? He says, Hushai, it looks like you've abandoned David. You've come on the right side. You've pledged loyalty to the right king. Come on into my inner circle and be my counselor. He's very cryptic on purpose. Now, in chapter 17... Absalom wants to know, how are we going to kill David? How's this thing? How are we actually going to get this thing done? How are we going to take over the, how are we going to take over the, the kingdom? And so, how, how many counselors does he have? Two. Ahithophel and Hushai. Absalom's counselors. And so, what was David's prayer again? Let the counsel of Ahithophel be foolish. Okay, so let's read into chapter 17. Let's pick up in verse 5. Let me get a drink of water here real quick. Are you guys tracking with me? Is everybody, am I, are you okay? I know it's a lot of, it's complicated. A lot of conspiracies, a lot of people, a lot of weird names. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll do the best we can here. So chapter 17, verse 5. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. Oh, wait a minute. Let's go back to chapter. Let's go back. And, let's go back. I'm sorry. Let's go back and read verses 1 through 4 because Ahithophel is going to tell David his opinion on how he's going to. Ahithophel is going to tell Absalom on how he wants to kill David. Okay. Everybody with me? I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a lot of chapters here tonight. Okay. Chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men. It's a lot. 12,000 men. And I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. Peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. 
Okay, so what's Ahithophel's advice? What's his battle plan? Give me 12,000 men. We'll rush in there right tonight. I'll kill David, and then everybody else will bring back as kind of prisoners of war to come back and live under your rule. But we're not going to have a battle. We're not going to fight. We're just going to go in there with this huge number, and we're just going to kill David tonight. And Absalom says, okay, sounds good. No bloodshed, no mayhem, only David dies, all of his people will come back. Sounds like a good plan. But I know my dad. I know my dad's a good military genius. And I know my dad's a tactician. And my dad has outwitted Saul multiple times. My dad's outwitted the Philistines. That may be a good plan, Ahithophel, but let me see if there's another one. Let me weigh some options here. Let me bring Hushai into the scheme and see what Hushai has to say. Okay? Now let's pick up in verse 5. Okay. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus as Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they're enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. As soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all of the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. A better plan. Now, what was David's prayer? Make the counsel of Ahithophel seem foolish. Hushai comes in, gives a better plan, and what happens? The people say, let's follow Hushai's plan because it's better than Ahithophel's plan. But why? Why? Look at verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel for, why, the Lord ordained ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring upon harm to Absalom. God is sovereignly working to protect David, even to the point of making Ahithophel's counsel not listened to. 
it's not just some random thing here. God is answering the prayer. The Lord ordained, that's what your Bible says, the Lord ordained that the people would listen to Hushai's plan <coughs> instead of Ahithophel's plan. And it would be to the doom of Absalom. So God is ordaining the downfall of Absalom through a spy named Hushai by overriding the counsel of the guy that everybody looked to, Ahithophel. Okay? And that word ordain in the original <coughs> excuse me, the original Hebrew means to predestine or to appoint or decree. Job 5.12, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. That's God. Proverbs 21.30-31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Okay, on the surface, what does everything look like? It looks really political and maneuvering. Hush, David sends spies. Hushai's coming in as a spy. He, he kind of ingratiates himself to Absalom. He gives good counsel. Ahithophel gives counsel. Everybody in this inner war room is giving counsel. But behind the scenes, what's happening? God is sovereignly working out his plan to make sure David is saved. Through all this political machinations. It's God's predestined plan that David would still remain on the throne. And it's amazing to me that this doesn't happen through, um, there's no lightning bolts or, you know, um, there's nothing miraculous going on here for God to do this. It's basically through ordinary men gathering together with battle plans. But God is getting done his plan because God gets his plan done. God's going to orchestrate, God's going to accomplish, God's going to get his will done. So let me ask you a question. As you look back on your life, can you think of times you really didn't know what God was doing behind the scenes, but he was working his sovereignty to bring you to himself? It could be in your salvation. It could be in your spiritual growth, but it, you were going through something and you didn't exactly know what God was doing, but then when you look back with 2020 vision, you realize, oh my goodness, God was there all the time orchestrating and moving and, and doing all these things. At the time, I didn't really know what it was, but I look back and realize that's the sovereign hand of God at work. Okay, so here's something we need to look back at. God has been sovereignly working in all three of these chapters. He's not going to be manipulated and bargained with by David. Remember, David says, I'm not taking the Ark of the Covenant with us. If God wants to do what God wants to do, I'm resigning myself to that. God owes me nothing. I submit myself to God's sovereign plan. And then God is sovereignly behind the scenes bringing friends into David's life to encourage him. Abiathar, Zadok, Hushai. And then he's sovereignly behind the scenes ordaining or orchestrating Hushai's advice would frustrate Ahithophel's advice. Now, what we find out in the rest of chapter 17 is that Hushai 
secretly sends the two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. They've been behind the scenes all along. He sends them back to David to tell of the plan. Okay? They kind of get chased down as they're leaving. They have to hide in a well. But eventually, they get to David. They tell him of the plan of how Hushai fooled Absalom, and David escaped and was saved. So Hushai, said, so Hushai they, they believe Hushai's plan as opposed to... So Hushai does not know what's going to happen. I mean, behind the scenes, God is ordaining that Hushai's plan gets accepted. But at the time, Hushai doesn't know, are they going to listen to Ahitophel or are they going to listen to me? So they listen, Absalom listens to Hushai. Hushai says, okay, he goes secretly to the two other friends, Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, and says, listen, I fooled King Absalom. He, he's bought my plan. I need you guys to hightail it out of here. Go to David, you know where he is, and tell him what the plan is so that he can get out. And they eventually do that. And so the, the chapter actually ends with a tragic note. Ahithophel realized that when his advice was not heeded, he went home and committed suicide by hanging himself. So that's the story of chapters 15, 16, and 17. But I want to draw your attention to a significant detail I purposely left out to save the best for last. I want you to go back to chapter 15. And I want you to look at verse 30. As they're leaving the temple mount, look at chapter 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Okay, so you need to know a little bit of the geography of Jerusalem. When David has to flee Jerusalem, where the basically where the Temple Mount is now. You go down through the Kidron Valley. This is where Jesus, you go down through the Kidron Valley and then you go up to the Mount of Olives. And so David's in the Mount of Olives, which was there at David's time, the same time it was there at Jesus' time. And what's David doing on the Mount of Olives? He is crying tears because in his mind, he'd lost everything. I've lost my kingdom. My son has revolted against me. I've been betrayed by my closest friends. My people have turned on me. I'm having to flee Jerusalem. And one last time before I get out of Jerusalem, I look back at my kingdom. I'm on the Mount of Olives, and I'm weeping profusely because everything's been ripped from me. He's been abandoned by his friends. Okay. Can you think of someone greater than David? David's true son, who was betrayed by a close friend. 
Judas betrayed Jesus, where his own people turned on him, and who was also abandoned. Can you think another, of another time when the true son of David, the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ, climbed up the Mount of Olives, and just before his death on the cross, he cried so bitterly that he dropped, or he, it was like sweats of, of blood. David weeped bitterly on the Mount of Olives because everything was ripped from him and he was abandoned. Jesus wept bitterly to the point of drops of sweats of blood because he had been betrayed. And we see this in Luke 22, 39 through 44. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them with about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Okay, let's compare David to Jesus. Why did David weep bitterly on the Mount of Olives? Because he was betrayed and losing his kingdom and being abandoned. Why did Jesus on the Mount of Olives weep bitterly, drops of blood. Because he knew that in the next few hours on the cross, he would literally be abandoned by his father. And the full cup of wrath would come barreling down upon him in those excruciating moments on the cross. David's kingdom was torn from him. He was betrayed and abandoned. He's going into exile, and before he does that, he goes up on the Mount of Olives and weeps. Jesus, who was God in the flesh, never once sinned like David. David sinned. He's paying the consequences of his sin. That's why he's leaving. Jesus never once sinned, but he was betrayed. He was abandoned. And when you think about it, the cross was, in a sense, a spiritual exile as he was taking the penalty for our sins. But after his death, he rose victorious. He conquered death. He defeated sin. David could never do that. Only Jesus can. And so Jesus is the only hope we have when we sin, when we are wayward when we need protection. And so what are the truths that we need to understand that we need to have embedded into our souls as we look at the ramifications of David's sin? For the past three weeks, we've been looking at David's sin. All the way back in chapter 11. Chapter 11, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, has Uriah killed. Chapter 12, Nathan comes to him and says, you're the man. David confesses his sin, but there's going to be consequences in his life for here on out. 
dramatic consequences. Chapter 13, his son rapes his stepsister, and then the brother goes and kills him and flees. Chapter 15, 16, and 17, what we've seen tonight, David is conspired against by his son Absalom to take over the throne. He's, he's abandoned by his friends. He's experiencing the ramifications of that sin that go all the way back to when he was on top of the roof looking down at Bathsheba. What could he have done in that moment? I'm saying no to this temptation and I'm going to go out to war where I should be. That one, that one glance that was not stopped brought us to this point. The ramifications and the ripple effect of his sin. So, what do we know? Well, sin is offensive to a holy God. But like David, we need to confess and repent of our sins. We saw that in Psalm 51. And yes, God absolutely forgives all of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yet, or nevertheless, we may face the strong hand of God's discipline as we suffer the consequences of our sin. But we need to remember this. God is disciplining us not out of vengeance, but out of love for us as wayward children and His desires to bring us back. And through it all, we can trust that God is sovereignly working things out to preserve us, to keep us, and to bring us back to repentance. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Now, is it because we're so good? Is it because God owes us? Or is it like David? I'm in the hands of a sovereign God. Whatever he sees fit to do, I'm going to receive it. God owes me nothing but death, hell, and wrath. He's given me grace upon grace in Christ. And if I suffer the consequences for my sins as a believer, I'm going to be consigned to, to suffer those and not fight against God's sovereignty. And so whenever you doubt that God loves you, just look at the Mount of Olives where the Savior went and, 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 and cried drops of blood and then went to the cross and died in your place so that you could be forgiven. He'll never abandon you. David was abandoned. Jesus was abandoned. But Jesus was abandoned so that we would never have to be abandoned. We'll never have to go into spiritual exile because Christ experienced it on our behalf. He was forsaken so we would never have to be. He was abandoned so we would never have to be. Praise the Lord for His sovereign grace. Father, we do look at these events in David's life and we, we, see, we see his heart, Lord. Help us to have that heart that we are resigned to receive whatever you bring to us. And you've brought us grace through Christ and you did not have to save us. You were not obligated to save us. We do not deserve salvation, but you brought it to us through Christ and we are so thankful. And so help us to not fight against your sovereignty or have an entitlement mentality, but help us just to realize that we are, we are your servants and that you're in charge. But Lord, we thank you that you do never leave us, you never abandon us, that you did go to the cross on our behalf so that we would never have to be abandoned or forsaken. And our only hope is in you, Jesus. Help us to see the, the devastating consequences of sin 
especially in the life of a family, and help us to avoid that and help us to realize our only hopes in Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.